tax tax, which is always exciting. GST reform. That's a great idea. Have a more efficient tax. tax. Due diligence tax. now. Hello and welcome. This is Tax Wrap, brought to you by Taxpayers Australia's tax specialists. My name is Nathan Hewitt, and today we're joined by Bill Mavropoulos, Angela Lehman, and Reese Agland. How are we doing, guys? Hi, Nathan. Doing well for my first time. So yeah, and we're yeah. four episodes in this week. Can you believe it? Four episodes. Four. Four episodes. Four weeks. We started. We thought it was going to be a fortnightly thing, but it turns out that it's um, a little bit too much fun. To, to do only fortnightly, so, so we decided do weekly. to kick it back to weekly. It's great to have you all here. Uh, the uh, temperature in the office is set to a balmy 21-odd degrees, so it's a <laughs> prime temperature to talk tax, which is always exciting. Now, Reese, you're the head of superannuation at Taxpayers Australia, which means you have um, a wealth of knowledge on superannuation, particularly SMSFs, which is something we'll get to a little bit later. But first of all, refund excess contributions. So take us away with that topic. Please. Yes. All right. Um, as some people may know, with superannuation, there's a certain amount of money you can contribute to your SMSF, um, but there are caps on that. Now, in relation to uh, what are your concessional contributions, those are the contributions that you don't pay tax on. Oh, sorry, only 15% tax on. Uh, the cap is $30,000 for most people uh, and 35000 if you're 50 or over. If you exceed those caps, you are subject to excess contributions tax, uh, which is a hefty penalty. Uh, a couple of years ago, the government changed the policy in relation to that, which allows people to take some of that money out. However, that left the non-concessional contributions, which are the contributions you make out of your post-tax income. Um, the limit on that is now $180,000 or $560,000 if you bring it forward for three years. Uh, however, that hadn't been subject to the change in relation to the excess contribution tax. The new proposals that have been set and were part of the government's uh, budget basically says that what you can do is you can take out those excess amounts uh, and put it into your normal income, pay your normal income on that, and there's an additional amount called the associated earnings amount, which is the amount of earnings your investments would have made while they were in there. Okay. So, Reese, are they allowed to take 100% of that out, or is there some kind of limitation on that? No, you're allowed to take the full amount of your excess out and put it into your income, yep. or you can choose to take out only part of it, uh, and if you only take out part of it, the rest of it is still subject to the uh, excess contributions tax. Uh, apologies right. for the basic question, yep. um, but would that mean that you need to physically take it out, or is it just taking it out of the accounts? I'll basically kind of take it out of your accounts, put it into, you well, You need to take it out of your super, yep. put it into your personal accounts, yep. and you can do with, with it whatever you want oh, to do. Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, when is that effective from? Well, even though the legislation hasn't passed, it's actually effective from the 2013-14 year, so last year. So if you had an excess contribution last year, excess non concessional contribution last year, you'll still be able to get the, uh, able to take it out. So that's right. that's a bonus for people that, you know, it's, it's because it, it, they announced that policy before the election okay. that they're doing that. And do you think that's going to be widely taken up by? Uh, it will be by, by some people, but because your superannuation is taxed at only 15% during the earnings stage, some people may calculate that it's better to keep those excess amounts in there. So you're probably likely to see some people developing some schemes and arrangements around that in which they can take advantage of the, the lower tax rate that right. they get. Mm. Yeah. So some people will take it out because they did it accidentally, but those that have done it deliberately 
uh, may actually still keep it in there. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. so let's talk baseline pros and cons. The pros and cons at the very, very simplest. I mean, what are, what are some of the negatives that we're looking at with... Um, the negatives is that it's quite complicated to actually do the calculation, but the good thing with that is the ATO does that calculation for you and okay. tells you. The interesting thing will be making that decision, do I take it out or do I, do I leave it in? Mm-hmm. And they'll probably need to seek some advice from their accountant about what's the best thing to do with that money. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So um, before we move on, um, being uh, quite knowledgeable on SMSFs, you've got an ultimate trustees guide coming out. now. Um, takes a little bit through that. Um, just yep. I mean, there's there's a million SMSF trustees and over 500,000 SMSFs. Um, the ATO is concerned that some people don't know what they're doing or may not understand fully what they're doing. So what we've developed is a guide that basically runs through from conception to the death of your SMSF. We haven't seen another product like this out there. And basically mm-hmm. says, First question, is an SMSF right? for me? Because it's not right for everyone. For some people, it is really a bad decision and they're just going to get themselves into trouble. So the first question, is it right for me? If it is, what do I do to need to set it up? How do I administrate it from a day to day? What kind of investments can I make? What is it taxed? And basically, what is the pension elements in relation to it? And finally, what happens when I die or I want to wind up my fund? So it's from birth to death of an mm. SMS. Oh, that's fantastic. And it obviously will touch on the ref- refund excess contributions. Yes, that well. will be in there. Yes. Okay, great. And something interesting that was in there as well that we were talking about earlier was um, this area of collectibles. I mean, you've set aside a specific area for collectibles such as sports cars, which is sports cars, mm. um, collecting art, things like that. And what I didn't know was... Um, that if you invest in art or if you invest in sports cars or these fancy things that we like to have, you can't actually use them in a practical sense. They have to be stored away because they are purely an investment. So that's something that's quite interesting if we're talking about sports cars. I mean, half the, the thing about buying a sports car is you get to drive it and everyone mm. look at my Aston Martin <laughs> DB9 Does that mean that, that you can't even like sort of open the vault and have a look? Well, there's this. You can open the vault, have a look, and make sure it's there. But you can't. If you buy a painting, you can't put it on your wall. Okay. If you buy, you know, a no. rare Ferrari, you know, you can't keep it in your garage and drive it on weekends, which is unfortunate because if you have that kind of car, one, you want to use it, but two, they actually need to be regularly used. Mm. So if you're going to invest in collectibles, what you need to do is either put it away somewhere where it's protected or lease it out to a museum or something like that and they can look after it and it can earn some income while it's doing that and then you can sell it. Mm. And if you put it in a museum at least every now and then you can go down into the museum and so have a look okay. at it. So, so, so that's, 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 that's right. fine. Was, that was but the days expression. of buying a, you know, a painting and sticking it up in your, your bedroom wall is, uh, is over and done with. Okay. Uh, yeah. so which, which is unfortunate because there is some good money to make from collectibles. Um, they do very good returns if you know what you're doing. The problem with some paintings is people didn't really know what they were doing. And, you know, so there was concern that they weren't proper investments. So they brought in these these extra rules on top, which has made it hard for collectibles. Okay. It reminds of that. Is it the Jackson Pollock um, painting? No, the, the Melbourne City <laughs> board, the yellow... Oh, I'm, even, I'm yeah. even thinking about oh, baseball that big cards and things like that. I didn't even like, consider it. Or stamps or, you know... Stamps are definitely included in it. Baseball cards would be if they are collectible, if, if they're just, you know, your day-to-day... Well, your footy cards in Australian. If you had old footy cards, if, as long as you kept them in a binder and they were protected, yeah, okay. you know, they're, they're not, they're not going to get too involved. They're not going to come and knock on every door to okay. check if there's a painting on the wall. But if there is comes out later on, then you've breached the Sole Purpose Act and they might then charge more tax. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. Sure. So, so the Sole Purpose Act states. is essentially just um, 
basically that that investment thing. So you can only um, purchase something. Yeah, I mean the, the whole purpose of superannuation is to make sure you've got some money in retirement. Yeah. If you start using it for other purposes, yeah. then it goes against that policy. So the policy direction is if you're going to invest something with your SMSF or your super in general, then it has to be for the sole purpose of yep. being for your income. So you can't have, yeah, I mean, the, the big case was the uh, Swiss chalet case oh, yeah. where someone bought a Swiss chalet and put it in their super fund. And really the reason they did that was to go on holidays there. I mean, that's not the purpose of yeah, having. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite open It would be nice if we could afford a Swiss chalet. <laughs> but, uh, so I guess it is. It is the purpose that most people would set up one is that they do get that choice as to what they can invest their money in. Yeah. You're not regulated by um, other members like a broader industry or retail group. You can make that decision, but obviously there's still rules and regulations around that as well. Yeah, there are some restrictions on what you can invest your SMSF in and there's there's rules around loans to members and and those kind of things where people try to, to get benefits today from the, the superannuation yeah. and those kind of rules are you know you're very limited in what you can do mm. but you can buy property you can buy all kinds of things in your super and if you've got an air investment where you're a specialist in then the great thing about having an smsf is you can invest in that rather than invest in just shares or and in a you bank understand account. It, yeah. yeah as long as yeah. you understand it so yeah great okay that's quite interesting moving on the g20 tax Outcome. So over the weekend, the G20 summit wrapped up, and I think the most interesting thing that resulted from that G20 summit was the uh, the Lux Leaks thing. Quote Lux Leaks. Hashtag Lux Leaks, if you will. <laughs> taxpayers at Taxpayers AU. Um, so it centred around Luxembourg's tax evasion, and particularly um, Jean Claude Juncker, who was the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, the, the tiny European duchy, during a for a 19 year period. So it's thought that. Um, so basically, to give you a little bit of background before I jump straight into it, 340 companies were found to be um, shifting their profits through Luxembourg. So it was a tax haven. Um, and Jean-Claude Juncker was uh, sort of... People sort of thought, hey, hang on a second, you were Prime Minister for 19 years, during which time companies were shifting profits through Luxembourg. So how much involvement did you have? Did you really architect a tax haven? How much of a hand did you have in that? Mm. So it's quite an interesting thing for global tax evasion. It it is an interesting thing, but I think um, people have to keep in mind that in terms of legalities, uh, it's very much a legal practice. Mm. It's it's not like they were flouting international or domestic tax laws. Mm. It's more about, I guess, the transparency around um, just effectively what, what tax rate those companies were paying. So I think the the arguments, or I guess what was put to um, that that former former leader, was was basically um, in terms of uh, in terms of the the tax structuring there was that open and transparent. Why is the only way that we got this information um, from an investigative journalist body actually doing some investigation in this area and releasing those documents? So I think that's really important. Um, to keep in mind. And I think what we also should mention is why is that a problem? Like, why is it a problem if some of these companies do go offshore and pay a lower rate of tax? And basically, I guess the whole discussion at the G20 was about the fact that each country wants companies to pay their due mm. where those profits are earned. Well, that's, that's and right. And for as long as there are tax havens, these companies are always going to try and shift profits offshore into these havens. And countries such as Australia are saying, well, hang on, Facebook, Ikea, some of those yeah. big names that have been named, um, 
for the profits you're making here in Australia, you should be paying a fair and reasonable amount of tax. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we know from certain reports that have been released that you know the effective rate they've been paying is well it, and truly below is, the is much corporate yeah. rate. And I think that's that's really it. It's it's the social contract that um, those companies have with the jurisdictions that they operate in. I mean, it, it's all well and good to minimise tax. I think um, a lot of taxpayers uh, engage in strategies to push down. Um, the effective rate of tax that they do pay on their income um, and that's all well and good but when your bargaining power is such that you can push that rate down to a level that isn't acceptable to the other taxpayers in that community mm-hmm. that's where you've got these tensions that that arise and where, where you've got some pushback from from the general public mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. so I, I think um, in terms of this area it's very interesting to see um, general population um, push back. Yeah, I mean, this is the first time I've you can seen imagine, it. I mean, you know, uh, your average Joe Blow down the street is paying more tax than a multinational, you it's know, quite ridiculous country. Yeah, I yeah, mean, as, that's, as a percentage. As, as a percentage. Yeah. As a percentage. Yeah, I mean, right. that's crazy. And it that's is. in anybody's language, really. Mm. And I think that's the, that's the thing where you've got governments that are going into austerity and saying, we can't afford um, a number of services. And you've got, on the other hand, multinational corporations that aren't paying what people think should be the tax rate that they're paying, um, that's where that blowback is coming from. Mm-hmm. People are sort of saying, well, you know, no, we shouldn't be um, either hiking up our our taxes or reducing services. We should be trying to find that revenue from, from these multinational corporations. But look, I just sort of wanted to touch on it. I didn't want to dwell on this, so I reckon we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Um, Put the pin in the philosophical argument about the, the moral the moral imperative to want to reduce the amount of tax you pay. Um, we'll leave that rich gets richer argument alone. That could be now. a podcast in itself. I think. I think we could talk about it for weeks. I, I promise it will return. It'll return. So moving on to our next segment, something that I'm pretty excited about, and I think you guys are as well. Yeah. Uh, during the week, we reached out to our um, social media followers on LinkedIn uh, and Facebook asking them to send us in questions that they had, basic tax questions, basic super questions, just to get some uh, a response from the panel. It's always exciting to have your name read out on a, a podcast as well, so that's always exciting. But we've got two questions, uh, one related to tax and one related to super. The first one, to do with SMSFs. Now, this question comes from August Mabry from Cooper Pedy in South Australia. Uh, she's asked um, of Reese, I want to start up an SMSF. How much money do I need? Okay, the first point is that there's no minimum amount. So you can start one with, with $1 if that's really what you want to do. But the reality is the cost of administrating an SMSF can be quite expensive. So it depends on how much you do yourself and how much you put out to external advisors. So if you do everything yourself, they say you need probably at least $150,000 to warrant having an SMSF. Otherwise, it's cheaper to keep it in an industry or a retail fund. Mm. The other option is you want to do some of it yourself and give experts some of the other stuff, like get an outside investment advisor, get an accountant to do the tax and do all that kind of work, or get an administrator to do the administration size, then you probably need around 250000 uh, And again, if you're going to outsource everything and just lay back and leave it alone, then you probably need around $500,000 to make it justified. So it's not an issue of limitations, it's mm-hmm. just a limit. It's an issue of how much it costs to administer your fund. You want to get it around to one, one and a half percent cost the lower you can get it the best okay fair enough 
Moving to the tax side of things, thanks also to August for um, reaching out to us. It's fantastic to have that comment and we hope it sort of grows as the podcast continues. Um, so this one's for Ange and Bill uh, particularly. So this comes from Matthew Dart who lives in Southbank in uh, Melbourne. Yep. I've got some pretty hefty legal fees as a result of some litigation just wrapped up. Are those fees deductible as part of my general business deductions? So first and foremost, depends? Yeah, very much depends on yeah. what... It's one of those questions. <laughs> one yeah, of those. Yeah. It depends on what, what the litigation is about and, and I guess the ultimate underlying transaction that it resulted from. So, I mean, I guess a general principle of, of tax to keep in mind when you're considering deductibility is what, why was that expense incurred? What, what was the necessary um, connotation of that expense? So, for example, let's say um, you had, oh, gee, this is a difficult one. Um, <laughs> let's say you had a business that sold soft drinks. Um, and, for example, uh, someone who consumed that soft drink got sick uh, and, and then sued the company. Okay. Would that be deductible? And I guess the question is, what is what's tying that litigation to the income that that company is earning. Okay. The closer that connection, the more likely it is to be deductible on on the proviso that the expense itself is not capital. Yeah, okay. So you had a quite a similar question, Ange, yeah, I think, to this. Yeah, so I had um, a call from a member actually, and they were talking about their client was an employer whose contractor sued them uh, for injury okay. and there was litigation and then the employer lost the litigation and not only had to pay their own legal fees but the legal fees of the oh well contractor okay. or ex-contractor yep. and <laughs> the question was well are those legal fees i.e the employers plus the employees or contractors legal fees mm. are they deductible in this scenario mm. well i guess the thing is the first question that I would ask, is there insurance to cover the public liability there? Well, and, and, and obviously not in this case because no. it's funding, funding those costs. But if you thought about that insurance, would that insurance be deductible? Quite rightly so, yeah, it would definitely. be. Yeah, definitely. Because it's protecting you from that risk. So I think the thing is, it's all about tying that type of expense back to the business and the income earning of that business. I mean, there are risks when you are employing uh, people to, to undertake Tasks. activities mm. or, or contractors in your business, uh, does that necessarily mean uh, that in all cases, expenses arising from litigation of those those other entities would result in a deduction? I guess the thing is, does it go to the capital nature of that business? What is, um, what is that contractor doing for that firm? Yeah, and that's where we probably need a little bit more research to be undertaken, but basically performing services, I think it might have been some kind of trades business. Okay, um, so it's just basically subcontracting yeah, on the work. Yeah, exactly. All right, in that case, uh, I, I guess the thing, the, the way that I would approach that question is to, is to look at it uh, in the context of it being probably deductible, um, but there would obviously need to be a full analysis done. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. There'd be a good chance of deductibility in, in that sort of circumstance, yeah. I guess. And then we've got some sort of quirky ones. So people who have property investments, for example, mm, residential. Okay. You know, you get really weird difficult. ones. Like if you're defending, they say if you're defending your property mm -hmm. in any way, those legal fees can be um, deductible. Because so, you have to. That that's an expense that you you can't avoid. Basically. Yeah. So if there's any litigation against you as a as a landlord or 
then there's sort of different rules again for that. That makes sense because you have to defend yourself. Yeah, yeah. So there's, it just depends. Legal fees are a bit tricky. So um, to uh, Dart, I guess, you know, you'd have to definitely look into it further. Yeah, we hope this information um, in a general sense has been helpful to you, Matthew. Thanks for reaching out to us. Um, And also for future podcast episodes, particularly next week, we'd like to have your input. So if you have any questions, uh, send it through to Taxpayers Australia Limited on LinkedIn, at TaxpayerAU on Twitter, and podcast at taxpayer.com.au. You can send your questions through the email address. And and we'll fill those questions um, on the regular every week on the podcast. So just keep that in mind and reach out to us if you have any questions at all. Well, that pretty much is time on this edition of Tax Wrap, episode four. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ange, Bill, and Reese. No Thank you. Thank you. Ta- discussion's been fantastic. We also want to just put out a little disclaimer there. We are not saying that footy cards have absolutely any value whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so those old ones of Warwick Kappa from the 80s, you may have to hold on to them for quite a while before they have any value. <laughs> It's sentimental value. Sentimental value. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we just don't don't advise that as an investment. Yeah. Sure. Option. No. Of course not. <laughs> All right. Take it easy. See you later.